how thick is your skin? I mean, you took a beating. Yeah. And I think everybody who speaks up on these issues takes a beating. What drives me, and I think what drives a lot of the other mostly women who have spoken up, is just this idea of right and wrong. And what is happening is so wrong, and people need to hear about what it looks like in order to understand how wrong it is. my guest, Ellen Powell. In the past few years, she spent her days ringing the alarm bells about bro culture in Silicon Valley, and she's become very vocal in her criticisms of the giants of social media and their reluctance to curb abuse and misinformation on their platforms. She knows from experience, actually, that it's possible to act. When she was interim CEO of Reddit, she banned revenge porn and took down some of the most despicable subreddits. But all of that came after she made a choice in 2012, which pushed her into the national spotlight for the first time. It was a decision that would change the course of her life and have ripple effects across Silicon Valley. Back then, she was working in venture capital at the firm Kleiner Perkins, one of the biggest and frankly most notorious in the Valley. It was a big-time lucrative job in the competitive field. Sounds like a good gig, right? But after working there for seven years, she did something unexpected something she knew would have big professional consequences. She sued the firm for gender discrimination. And not only that, she took them to a very public trial. For 24 days in 2015, her case was the talk of the town. We begin tonight with an Ellen Powell sex discrimination suit against Kleiner Perkins. You're talking about an all-male culture, an all-male outing. Well, let's talk about gender so on, where there's for smoke, just a there's second. Fire. This is a big, big case with implications for workplaces all over the country. Everyone in Silicon Valley paying very special attention to this lawsuit. In the end, Ellen lost the case. But regardless of the outcome, her lawsuit blew the lid off sexism in the tech industry and helped pave the way for the Me Too movement. In 2017, she released a memoir, Reset, My Fight for Inclusion and Lasting Change. In our conversation, we talk about how sexism is pretty much hardwired into the foundations of the tech world and how hard it is to change, but also how she came to speak out despite being, by her own admission, an unlikely crusader. Was it hard for you? Were you worried about the decision to start speaking up? Yeah, it's not my nature. I'm an introvert. I'm a follower. I respect authority. I grew up in an Asian household where there's a lot of respect for hierarchy. So it was not natural to me. And it's still not natural to me. Like I have to force myself to speak up. I'm not a person who wants to have attention. So it's a very, you know, it was something that I felt, you know, was out of necessity. What I think is really interesting is now, like through my speaking up and through so many other people speaking up, there's a generation of people for whom they're not conditioned, where they are educated at a very early age about the unfairness and the lack of meritocracy and the um, and the structural problems early on. And I'm so curious to see if they're able to change things faster and to have a much better experience than we have had. Yeah. 
the experiences that could have been better weren't just at Kleiner Perkins. By the time she got to the firm, Ellen had already seen sexism at other jobs, including startups and a brief couple of years working in corporate law. But she had always believed that a work ethic, doggedness, smarts, those would be enough to help her succeed. You describe really well the grind of the sexist work environment where the slights are kind of not really that big and not really that obvious, but they're just relentless and constant. For me, it was hard because I had been raised to think of the world as a meritocracy. So I would be working really hard and doing my best, but I wouldn't be invited to a meeting. And it would be like a company that I had brought in to meet with the team, and I would be shut out of it. And I'd wonder, well, you know, was it because my schedule was too busy? Did the entrepreneur say something negative about me and not want me in the meeting? And you're trying to understand, like, what you did wrong. So I spent many, many years trying to figure out, like, what should I be doing better? How can I do a better job? And then I would be asked to, you know, go get cookies in the middle of a meeting where we're having a massive negotiation. And there was one offsite where, you know, we had the entire partnership. And at the end of the meeting, you know, one of the senior partners asked myself and another woman to take notes. And the other woman, it was like the last straw for her. And it Mm -hmm. seems kind of small. They were like, why is she getting so upset? Like, it's just taking notes. I'll go take the notes. But it's like, she was upset because we were put in the back row. And then you weren't called on, you were talked over, your ideas when you were able to to get a chance to speak weren't acknowledged until somebody repeated them. And all of those things added up. And she just said, I am not taking notes and took a stand there at the end of that Mm -hmm. meeting. And I was paralyzed. I would have just taken the notes, but then I was like, I can't like erode her stand. So I was just frozen there. And it was kind of a wake up call for me. Like how much am I willing to be complicit in this environment? There's also the catch 22 of how women were supposed to be and look. Yeah, I think the most jarring experience for me around that was was just getting feedback and getting these performance reviews where the feedback would be so garbled. It would be like, you need to be more, you need to speak up more. You need to own the room was a phrase they used. I don't even know what it means to own the room. Like if everybody's owning the room, (laughs) then who's the owner, right? Like then we're all talking over each other and we're all trying to dominate and you need to have some people who aren't dominant, you know, in order to have a conversation. But it was also like, you're too sharp elbowed, you're too aggressive, you're too, um, you know, you're, you're, you you talk too much. So, like, how do you take those two pieces of feedback and integrate them? So I was just like, well, you know, what does that mean? Like, can you give me some concrete examples of when I did a bad job and what I should have done differently? Like, I, this feedback, I appreciate it and I want to take it. I like feedback. I like being able to improve. I like doing better. So, like, what what am I supposed to actually do? And can you give me some specific examples? Because this seems inconsistent to me. And they went back and they weren't able to get any examples because it, you know, then I was like, well, it's not really, it's more of an impression and a feeling than specific things that I need to do differently. Right. Do you think men ever get described as having sharp elbows? I really hate that expression so much. <laughs> oh, I know. Like, what does that even mean? No, they're they're told like they're go-getters and they're like moving ahead and they're taking charge and they're, it's a leadership and a confidence and a visionary approach versus somebody who is stepping into a place they don't belong. 
It wasn't just the dreaded sharp elbows. Ellen also found herself at odds culturally with some of the people she was suddenly working with. The top partners of Kleiner Perkins were rich. Some of them were billionaires. And their fixations, like buying multiple properties or planning for the apocalypse, were from a different world, a world that felt foreign to her, including, of course, a fixation on private jets. The private plane thing. Can you just maybe tell us a story or two about that? Yeah, it's... I remember we were leaving and... We got a call that the supermodel wanted a ride and to detour to, like, New York. Just the idea, I was just like, oh, my God. Like, who would have the audacity to first hitch a ride and then detour the ride? I guess that's the entitlement of being a supermodel, but also, like, this idea of not wanting to fly with the public and that circle of interaction gets smaller and smaller as you get more and more wealthy. You know, we should talk about billionaires because (laughs) they're like a separate species in our society right now. They've crafted a universe in which they only live, among others, that share this idea of what wealth should look like and be. And I feel like they are having an impact on the rest of us socially by setting forth kind of this example of entitlement, unquestioned entitlement. Yes, there was a guy I used to work with at one of the enterprise software companies I worked at, and he would talk about how he wanted a private jet. That was his goal in life. Like, I don't want to be with other humans. I think I deserve my own jet, and I'm willing to burn like a hundred times more carbon in order to be able to have that status symbol and to have that access and to be by myself. And there was something else Ellen noticed her colleagues were fixated on, a certain type of person, someone who was very much not Ellen Powell. It was a very closed environment. It was very elitist. They wanted people with certain backgrounds. Like, I just didn't fit in in the way that they wanted people to fit in. You know, and at one point, they decided they wanted 26-year-old <laughs> white men who could start companies and who had dropped out of school and had this kind of Mark Zuckerberg background. I didn't fit that profile, and they didn't see me as as relevant. I started seeing more of the problems, you know, I noticed early on and tried to help include more people from different backgrounds. But you get to a point where you realize, hey, they're not listening to me and they're not changing and they're not going to change. And, you know, I realized, oh, it's actually my gender and race that are causing them to feel uncomfortable with me in general. It's not how I behave. It's really like they just don't think that I'm their impression of that 26-year-old white man leading things is. And at that point, I realized, wow, this is actually not a good place. Yeah. This weird obsession with 26-year-old men, it, it really emphasizes something that I've always believed, which is that private equity and hedge funds and VCs are almost like, you know, the way baseball players are superstitious. And the idea of a 26-year-old white guy in a hoodie that dropped out of college is a great example of that. Do you think? Yeah. I think it's that, but I think also they have so much power. They can take some random company Mm. with a random entrepreneur and make it successful Mm -hmm. through their relationships, through their ability to access funding for subsequent rounds, and just through the power of their brands. So it is very interesting that you know, that they can be so narrow-minded and closed-minded with this fixed mindset about certain things and yet have all this power and this ability to make things happen. Although I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that those things are necessarily unrelated. I mean, I think the power kind of 
draws you into a closed mindset. Yeah. It's what you said. It's like this ever-narrowing um, swath of humanity where the, the unanimity around values gets even more rigid and the number of people you're exposed to gets smaller and smaller. And I think that there's also a vague disbelief about are people really hungry or are they really working hard and then, yeah. you know, having to take two jobs? And there, there's vague disbelief about what poverty is like. And it goes back to, like, they're able to take some loser in a hoodie and make them rich and successful. Like, why can't everybody else be like this loser mm-hmm. in a hoodie and yeah. get rich and successful? Like, are they really trying? Because it seems to be so easy for these losers. Do you think things have changed since the lawsuit? I think attitudes have changed a lot. When I first sued, people didn't understand what was happening. And this was before Me Too. And I think people now understand that these really bad things are happening and that they are bad. I don't think we've gotten to the point where people are being held accountable the way they should be, That where people are changing the systems that need to change to hold people accountable and to prevent these Um, you know, harassment and discrimination and all these other bad acts from happening. But I remember when I first sued and it became public, you know, the New York Times ran this big piece on me and they interviewed somebody who said, I don't believe this is true because we have never heard about anything like this before. And how could it be happening if nobody is talking about it? Well, basically, this is why nobody talks about it, because you're going to take them down and you're going to call them a bad employee, a complainer, a liar, because they are speaking up. In fact, the jury found opportunities were kept from her because she was a crummy money manager. She and her husband are facing a great deal of debt. We suspect lawyers will suggest that's one of the motivations behind her $16 million lawsuit. They say she had continued conflicts with staff and wasn't very good at her job. That was a standard playbook nine years ago when I sued, and, you know, it worked pretty well. Why do you think the press laps that up completely? I think there are two things. The PR teams and the amount of money that Kleiner and these companies that are trying to take down the people who speak up spend on manipulating the media is unreal. There were people all day long at my trial for PR for Kleiner Perkins, working the press the whole time. And then I think the second part is, you know, people like a villain. And I think there's also like a gender aspect and and potentially a race aspect where, you know, women are not seen as likable. Like women who succeed, you know, there have been studies that show that powerful women are just like viewed as less likable because they, you know, people just don't expect to see a woman in power and they don't feel comfortable with it. So that person, regardless of their personality, is less likable just by fact of being a woman in power. And I lost the trial, but I think it did change attitudes. I think people are much more cognizant of the types of harassment that happen in tech and in general. And for that, I'm I'm grateful to have been a part of it. By the time the trial rolled around, Ellen was interim CEO at Reddit. And it was there she made another controversial decision to ban certain types of behavior on the platform. And she did, in particular, revenge porn and shutting down some of the most offensive subreddits. Reddit is a platform that prides itself on free speech. So Ellen and her team had to decide what is bad enough to ban. 
And she tried to focus on behaviors, on direct forms of harassment and abuse, rather than ideas. I worry sometimes because, like, as you look, start to look at, at Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and the heavy reliance on algorithms, we've watched this unintended consequences of misinformation and, and heavy, heavy bullying and the growth of white supremacy and all these things happening. Yeah. When, when you were at Reddit, you made a distinction between harmful behaviors and the expression of ideas. Do you think that is still a useful distinction or do you think we need to go further? It's a starting point, right? I, the, the harassment, a lot of it is very crude right now. It's just a bunch of insults and threats and, you know, very violent imagery. So that piece, I feel like, is a very easy thing to take down. I think we will need to get more sophisticated. I think there are ways that people push mm-hmm. conversations off the platform that are very aggressive, and it's designed to discourage speech. And we have to be able to understand like this brigading where people gang up and start attacking every single comment on Reddit Mm -hmm. or every single tweet that you make on Twitter. Like That is harassing behavior because it's pushing people off a platform. And a lot of that is very easy to find and easy to tell and uh, should be taken down. It's the same thing on, on Facebook, I assume. I haven't used Facebook in many, many years. I I do think people need to be more disbelieving of the platforms when they say it's too hard to take stuff down. Like they haven't tried and they don't want to try because it's harmful to their business models. It's one of the big myths about platforms is that it's too hard to figure out this behavior and you've got billions of comments or billions of um, posts and how can you monitor all of them? Well, once you set up rules and you make an effort and you kind of attack one section of it at a time, you can get rid of a lot of the um, bad behavior. And then people see like, oh, they don't accept this behavior and they're going to ban me. So I'm not going to cross that line. So you end up without billions of posts with the disallowed behavior, you end up with very few of them because all of a sudden people understand the rules and they follow them. It's not that hard. And yet we continue to be flummoxed by these messages that, oh, it's too hard and we need to protect free speech and we need to, you know, on and on when it's really like, you know, people harassing other people, people pushing people off the platform. That is not free speech. That's not encouraging expression of ideas. It's just abusive. Do you think that that it would be helpful to understand who threatens and bullies? Not as a question of violating privacy, but more as a question of, like, should we understand the behavior better than we do? I, I struggle with this because, you know, I think I find all of those thought pieces on, you know, on the alt-right, it's glorifying in many ways. And I find that really distracting and I find it not productive. Like, we should be getting to the root of the behavior. And I'll tell you, like, the people who harassed me when I was on Reddit and making a lot of these changes, they were from all over the place. They were, you know, yes, there's a set of, you know, the alt-right that is very white, very male, many young, but there were women who were not happy. Like, it's change. And it's also this behavior that we've come to learn to 
exhibit, which is like we pile on and we climb on board the you know harassment train, and that's not coming from just a few people. Like now, it's at scale. I think in the beginning there was just you know very small groups of people who are, and I think it's still true that the people who instigate this behavior, it's smaller groups, and you can figure out who they are and start changing their behavior by enforcing your rules against them, and that will change the behavior of the rest of the platform. But when you look at like who's doing a lot of following on behavior, it's a broad swath of the community. While at Reddit, Ellen also found herself attempting to make changes to fix internal cultural problems to correct for the types of issues she had encountered in other male-dominated startups and, of course, at Kleiner Perkins. She hired more people of color and women to fill important roles in the company and worked hard to change the culture. But she still faced resistance. There's a line in your book that's so interesting where you say things were getting hard at Reddit and some of your coworkers were sort of hard on you. And you write, even so, you write, even if I wish they were less conservative and more accepting of women and diversity generally, they were nice. Um, I know what you're getting at here because we've been told not to be mean. We've been told to continue to offer them the benefit of the doubt. I think it's also like, I know so many of these people. Like I know the people who are, you know, harassing people. Like I've been in Silicon Valley for decades now. And a lot of these, you know, these bad actors were friends of mine. And I can see why it's so hard for a board to fire CEOs, to fire like that VP of engineering or that individual contributor who's been with the company for so many years because these are your friends. These are people like you've seen a very positive side of them, but it's so toxic if you don't. So I can empathize, but I also am so frustrated because you need to get over that. And it's like, everybody has a nice side. Everybody has a, you know, has some positive traits and we give in too often to that niceness instead of thinking about the consequences and thinking about the people who had these horrible experiences I do think the younger generation, like, it is much more black and white often, where they see somebody as being all good or all bad. And I think social media has a big role in that, where, you know, you have this this toxicity that builds up and you have the kind of reinforcing silos of folks on, you know, in Facebook groups or elsewhere, where they're just kind of taking that idea and making it more and more extreme for attention. Do you think it's harder to change a culture than to start a culture off right? Yes. Yes. Especially if you've got a set of, you know, white male founders who are building the traditional startup where they look at the schools you went to and the relationships that you have, you know, what fraternity you're at. Like, those are things that are built into the structure of the tech industry. And if you are trying to change it. It's very hard because now you need to change everybody's attitudes. You need to tell everybody that this is actually not allowed anymore and our company is going to take a different approach. And people have a hard time with that, you know, from the board level down to the individual employee who is used to being able to say hostile things, to harass their coworkers, to, you know, favor their um, male friends. And people get used to that culture. They join because of that culture and they don't want it to change. We saw at Reddit, we had this culture, it was, you know, founded by these white guys, and it was kind of a free-for-all. And 
as we went into change it, it was really hard. Like people didn't even want to have a mobile app. They were like, no, everybody uses the laptops and their desktops. You know, they're not going to want to use Reddit on a mobile device. It took like a year to start showing like, hey, people who use technology are using it on mobile and we need to have a mobile app for this product. But it was like this big cultural thing. Like we just want to promote the experiences that we have had and that we enjoy and that we experience. And we don't really care about anybody else. How much are we going to need CEOs to be on board with change for change to happen? Do we need them? I think CEOs are key to these changes. The example we have in the tech industry is like when you have usually a really strong engineer, often you let them get away with a lot of bad behavior because you need that engineer to ship your product on time, to make changes to the product. They may have built a lot of your technology, so only they can fix problems in it. They know where to go to make the changes, and they become this untouchable person where people are a little bit scared of them. Like, what if they leave? Then we can't do anything. And if this engineer has harassed somebody, you know, the head of engineering is going to say, well, I can't ship if I fire this person. So I don't want to fire this person. It's up to the CEO to say, hey, okay, we're going to take a risk to the ship date and we're going to protect this employee and we're going to, you know, hold this engineer accountable for their bad actions. And if the CEO's not on board, they'll make the easier decision, which is push out the person who raised the issue. And that just causes more and more problems because then it's like, oh, if you're a great engineer, part of being a great engineer is harassing other people. Yeah, that becomes what an engineer looks like. It's right. so hard because people aspire to be good. They, you know, if you said, "Are you going to let a harasser stay on your team?" No CEO would say yes. yes but how course. many harassers are on these teams? Do you think this culture is a little too credulous of the benign CEO, the the CEO that's got our best world in his head, or or do you think people are starting to be wise to the idea that maybe CEOs aren't necessarily to be all that trusted with our future? I know you hear my dogs, and they're really loud, and there's nothing I can do about Oh, that's them. my dog in the background. Oh, that's your dog. <laughs> yeah. I was just I'm assuming sorry. it was my dog. <laughs> so some people are getting wise to it. You know, you look at congressional hearings. The purpose of today's hearing is to examine the dominance of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. This hearing is entitled An Examination of Facebook and Its Impact. There was definitely a lot of skepticism in the questions and in the treatment of the CEOs of these big tech companies who are coming to defend their lack of action in taking care of like the harm that happens on their platforms. So you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. I'm not talking about spin. I'm talking about actual disinformation. Yes, in most cases, in a democracy, I believe that people should be able to see for themselves what politicians that they may or may not vote for so are you won't take them down character for themselves so you won't take you may flag that it's wrong but you won't take it down in the beginning though they you know it was a huge admiration fest where right. everybody aspired to be like them you know people going into tech instead of going into investment banking because it became the fastest way to make make a million dollars or a billion dollars and I, I think some of that, it's still there where people are like, oh, it's so exciting that Jeff Bezos is going into space. Like, who cares? Like, if I had, you know, $100 billion, I could send anybody into space, right? It's not, you know, that impressive, but people are all enamored by him. I think there's not enough attention paid to the fact that, like, his 
billions and billions and billions of dollars were made on the backs of people who can't earn a living wage working at Amazon, who aren't given breaks to go to the bathroom, who are forced to like grind harder and harder to live up to the ever more stringent expectations of how much you can accomplish delivering packages or boxing up goods. Like there's not enough attention paid to the fact that, you know, he doesn't seem to care. And he's more than happy to do some PR push to donate some money to a school or to a homeless project without actually thinking about the systemic problems that he's causing. Amazon now employs almost a million people in the United States. Yeah, he could give every one of them $1,000 and still have over $100 billion. The pushback I often get when I talk about how companies should just do better by their employees and settle for less money on the upside, that what you get is, well, but but philanthropy, they do philanthropy. I know, it's ridiculous. He's He has the lives of a million people, their work salaries and, you know, their quality of work life in his hands, and he's not done the right thing. What makes us think that, you know, him giving away money without any kind of controls or um, oversight is going to result in good decisions being made? Yeah for society at large. Yeah, it's, it makes no sense. <laughs> if you can wait a second, I'm going to give her a bone and hopefully she'll be quiet for the rest of this. One second. All right, I'm back. Sorry about that. Okay, so optimism. I'm just curious what you're optimistic about. Is there anything that feels like it's headed in the right direction? God, I'm just so excited about like the fact that workers are organizing. Silicon Valley and big tech, which have both long been averse to the formation of unions among workers, are starting to feel the pressure in 2021. Hundreds of employees at Google have partnered with one of the nation's largest unions to organize for the first time. And they're so effective. We saw Amazon protesting their their shareholder diversity rule. We've seen Microsoft employees protesting their work with the U.S. government that, you know, they're able to change the behavior of Amazon. Amazon workers are walking off the job to protest the company's environmental impact. CEO Jeff Bezos announced yesterday that the company will follow the 2016 Paris Climate Agreement, but some Amazon workers say this is not enough. That they're able to, you know, call Google out for how they're treating the teams who are working on trying to make our algorithms fair. Google employees are demanding senior leadership reinstate prominent black researcher Timit Gebru, who alleged she was fired after arguing tech companies should do more to ensure gender-biased and racist language are not exacerbated by artificial intelligence systems. So the fact that, you know, we're able to get people to understand that this behavior is wrong and then to to organize around it, and it's forcing companies to listen, I think that's really powerful. I think the fact that this new generation is much more oriented around values and inclusion is incredibly powerful. It's like 75% graduating from school think diversity and inclusion are very Mm -hmm. important in the workplace. And it's not just people from historically marginalized groups. It's, you know, the white men who think that inclusion is important and who want to see it in the workplace and don't want to go to a a company that favors their own demographic. So the world is going to change. And the question is, are, you know, today's leaders able to break out of that fixed mindset and 
embrace change or are they just going to get pushed out and be replaced um, by this younger generation ahead of their time? And maybe, maybe if they can't get on board, maybe that is not such a bad thing. Maybe it's actually what we need. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like that your optimism is about the oldest technology in the world, which is collective action. Yeah. And that's when the humankind has always pushed us all forward in the best possible ways. So I really appreciate, Ellen, you're taking the time today because it's been so interesting to talk to you. Oh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Like you're thinking about these hard issues. Ellen's book is Reset, My Fight for Inclusion and Lasting Change. These days, you can find her advocating for diversity and inclusion at Project Include or on Twitter at EKP. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, such a pleasure. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. The show was produced by Alexis Pencrazi and Christine Schomer. Ren Farrell is our assistant producer. This episode was engineered by Florence Barrow-Adams. Bob Golden composed our theme music. The podcast team also includes VP of Production Aideen Kane. Our executive producer is Kathleen Hughes. Learn more about the podcast on our website, forkfilms.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.